0: our, uh, I guess you could call it our evangelism series, our evangelism strategy uh, for our church plant um, in the, the sort of three Cs uh, paradigm. And I have been assigned uh, the pleasure of talking a little bit about the second step, which is called Connect. Um, can everyone hear me properly? Sorry, I, I haven't done this uh, yeah. in a while. So. Yep, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Um, I, I'm personally really, 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 really excited to um, share a little bit about this step because I think this is, uh, yeah, it very, like all the other three C's are important. Absolutely. But I think especially in this day and age, um, uh, you know, in our post-Christian context, this step is crucial. It's critical, uh, that we uh, get it right. Um, so, uh, I'll share a little bit about why I think that's the case because I think, especially in today's uh, reality, uh, we live in a, a context where uh, Christians, are. Uh, I guess you could say no longer, hold on, give me a second. Uh, I lost my notes. Peter, carry on the conversation, please.
1: Yeah. So how's everyone doing? (laughs) I got a message saying, Peter, you're too excited. (laughs) (laughs) All right, no one's responding. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's how it feels, Peter, that's how it feels. with the technical difficulties. Yeah, preach on Zoom. Let me just preach for us today. I'm just (laughs) Here we go. Paul, I don't know how you do this every week. It's so stressful.
1: Hey, Pastor Paul, tell us a joke. Give us an update or something. You know, don't choke. Mom's spaghetti. Um, Come on. Come <laughs> on, Mom's brother. spaghetti. We believe spaghetti. in you, mate. Um, <laughs> I don't have any jokes.
0: <laughs> oh, I had one joke. I forgot what it was. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I only had one, and I lost it. Oh. But I think Daniel's ready. Right. Okay. Are you ready now, Daniel? Yeah, I am ready. I am ready. Okay. Yeah, so um, I think this uh, particular Uh, step is really really important uh, in our day and age because um, I think we would all come to a broad agreement that Christians are no longer in the mainstream of culture Uh, we're not at the center if you want to call it like that Uh, we're well within the margins Um, we live in a a, some would call it a post-Christian context Um, what I mean by that is sort of I I guess gone are the days where uh, being a Christian assumed in the workplace that you were a decent nice and good person uh, now, people are more likely to think that Christians are meant to be decent, nice, and good, but aren't really. Um, the word hypocrite is more associated with Christian than the word holy. Uh, at least that's that's been my uh, personal experience. Uh, people's default position to Christianity isn't so much uh, apathy as it is antipathy. Now, it basically, it means it's not so much they don't care too much about our faith about Christianity Uh, the society at large seems to be more often outright against uh, our faith and maybe perhaps dismiss it as outdated backward and if they're honest with themselves uh, ultimately uh, irrelevant Uh, but the reality is also the true reality is we know better as Christians we know that Jesus changes everything Uh, Jesus is life Uh, Jesus' life to the full, Uh, we know uh, and we're convinced, hopefully, all of us here, that the Christian message is more relevant to our non-believing world and friends than they could possibly imagine, right? That's that's my firm belief, uh, and that's why we do what we do here. And it's our job as ambassadors of Christ, as Christians, to introduce them to it. Uh, But where do we start uh, that, in a nutshell, is what we're looking at today. That, in a nutshell, is what uh, this idea of connect is. So uh, imagine that you've contacted your colleague. Uh, you've, you've come in contact with your friend, uh, your neighbor, uh, and talked a little bit about Jesus. So, so what now? What do you do at that point? Uh, that's when you connect them. So uh, let's have a look here. Uh, the connect step in the three steps, uh, three C's paradigm is what I would like to call uh, the, the bridging step between contact and convert, right? So if you've got contact here and convert here, uh, connect is the, the bridging step. Uh, uh, this is uh, the definition that, that I want, want us to sort of focus on. Uh, what is connect? So connecting non-believing contacts with Christian people or Christian topic, so that they can investigate uh, Christianity. So the task for you guys, uh, for me, for us as a believer, is to bridge the gap that exists between engaging the non-believer, which is the contact step, and helping that non-believer become a believer, which is the convert step. Uh, Pretty simple and straightforward here. But to put it another way, uh, look at the diagram uh, on the screen. Uh, We need to meet the unbeliever where he or she is at, uh, which is at the beginning of the diagram on the left, and the goal is to get them to God, uh, to the right, okay? Sorry, Annie, I know you're texting me right now. I, I can't put this on, a, on, on full, full screen, otherwise it will get rid of my notes. So sorry, Annie, about that. Uh, but anyways, continuing on. Um, so yeah, so we're trying to get that person from the left all the way to God. But there are some barriers uh, uh, in his or her way, right? Christian, they, they might think Christianity is weird, Christianity is untrue, Christianity is irrele- uh, irrelevant, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus teaches us two specific ways we might approach this challenge. Uh, Pastor Paul uh, sort of referenced uh, the story last week, I would want us to uh, dig deeper into, I guess, the story itself. Uh, And in the final point, uh, it will be a short point, I'll touch on something that we'll need to keep at the back of our minds as we approach this. So um, the passage that we're looking at is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Um, I'll just read it out for us. If you have a Bible, uh, please follow along uh, as, I, as I walk us through the passage. So Luke 19 verses 1 to 10. He, uh, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a small man. Uh, so he ran on ahead. And climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled and said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So that's the story of Zacchaeus. The first point uh, I would like us to connect, uh, to focus on is from verses 1 to 3. Okay, so um, the story of Zacchaeus is actually... Not that prevalent throughout uh, the story of the Gospels. In fact, this is the only time in the four Gospel accounts that Zacchaeus is mentioned. Uh, so uh, we don't know much about him, other than the fact that he was uh, a chief tax collector and that he was uh, really, really wealthy. Um, to to make sense of why Luke puts this story here and to make sense of who this character is, we actually need to go back a chapter, um, because in Luke eighteen. Uh, there, uh, Luke records Jesus' parable, oddly enough, of the Pharisee and of the tax collector. And then a few verses after that, uh, in Luke, uh, uh, sort of it's three, six, four verses after that, um, Jesus also uh, encounters a rich young ruler. So uh, in Luke 19, we're introduced to Zacchaeus. And it's no coincidence that he's both a tax collector and a rich man. Based off the, the two previous accounts, um, I think uh, we can make some assumptions about uh, Zacchaeus. Number one, he was a tax collector who knew that he was a sinner, just like the tax collector in the parable. And number two, he was a rich man who wanted to enter the kingdom of God, just like the rich young ruler in the previous chapter. The contrast between the rich young ruler in particular with Zacchaeus is actually quite striking because both approached Jesus Because both are at a crisis point. But only one sells his possessions and gives it away. Only one does Jesus proclaim that salvation has come to his house. So what is the uh, difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus? Well, it's the fact that he was a tax collector. And he most likely also, like the parable, beat his chest and said to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But why do I talk a little bit about this? What does this have to do with our uh, goal of connecting with non-believers? Well, throughout Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus's reputation for forgiving sinners, uh, healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God increased in scope as uh, he did his ministry. And Zacchaeus, like the rest of the country, would have heard about Jesus and what he claimed to do. And Zacchaeus, because of where he was at in his uh, life, uh, where he was distressed, where he was riddled, riddled with guilt, he knew that being rich did not satisfy his inner need. He goes out and looks for Jesus, uh, as we read in verse verse 3. He finds Jesus as he looks for Jesus at the height of his crisis point. Uh, there are, so there are two things uh, we can apply to make sure our contacted friends, colleagues, and neighbors uh, also look for Jesus in their own crisis points. So number one, uh, we must position ourselves to be accessible to non-believers and closely related step uh, number two, practice ourselves to be accessible to non-believers. So uh, let's look at the first point. So uh, first P, First P, yeah. So position yourself. I doubt that Zacchaeus was always uh, a guilt-ridden man. I doubt that he was always willing to repent. Um, I doubt that he was always riddled with guilt and so eager to seek after Jesus. Um, I doubt that he was uh, always prepared to give up his money. Uh, But here's the thing. Uh, What is similar between Zacchaeus and uh, the story of Zacchaeus and your uh, co-worker and your neighbor and your friend? is that uh, the non-believer that you get into contact with will at some point in his or her life, no doubt, come face-to-face with a crisis, right? That's just life. We're always encountered with crises at certain points in our lives, whether it's an internal one or an external one, Uh, be it a, a disillusion of money and possessions like Zacchaeus was, or maybe it's an external one, sickness, bankruptcy, uh, death, depression, uh, the list, unfortunately, uh, can go on and on. Uh, sooner or later, uh, life, uh, life gives you lemons. And, and when crisis hits them, our job is to position ourselves to be there with them when it does, to be present among them. You know, Jesus says uh, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think that everyone feels poor in spirit in some way at some point in life. It's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. And personally for me uh, at work, the the best conversations I have had about Jesus uh, with my workmates uh, and my friends at work uh, was when life took an unexpected turn for them. Uh, when their default worldview became insufficient to comfort them or to give them any real substantial hope. And that is when, I believe, connecting non-believers to Christianity is most effective. In a sense, we ourselves become the bridge that connects them to Jesus in their crisis points by simply being present in the mess with them. So position yourselves. But having said that, uh, we also need to practice ourselves to be accessible. So in other words, we need to be true to our faith in front of our non-believing friends. Be known for your faith. Make sure they know that you know that your faith in Jesus makes a difference. There is no point in positioning ourselves in the lives of non-believers uh, to help them in crisis points and to be there in the, in the messiness for them, if they don't know that your faith in Jesus might be helpful to them in their crisis point. You see, if, if your worldview seems to be no different to any other person that doesn't believe in Jesus, then they probably won't go deeper with you than the average person. They might, but I don't think they will in any given circumstance. The way in which we conduct ourselves uh, have to give off a, I guess you could call it a, a Christian aroma. Uh, the Bible calls it, calls it the, Christian, uh, the aroma of Christ, but a, a Christian sense, a Christian smell. And I found this um, uh, pretty uh, funny, uh, picture here but like if this helps just think about whenever you go out of your house and go to work you're putting on this fragrance okay people need to know in your networks and your neighborhoods as the christian dude or the christian girl even maybe in a derogatory way i mean this might this might manifest in how you talk Uh, in your viewpoints on contentious issues, uh, in the way that you're known to be uh, self-sacrificial in the workplace, in the way that you love others, in the way that you go above and beyond for other people. We need to practice ourselves as Christians uh, amongst our non-believing friends. Give off that Christian sense. Look for every opportunity to be a Christian in any given circumstance. Make your Christianness public. Get, in, get on the inside of those on the outside. If you want a sentence summary of this point, that's it. Get on the inside of those on the outside. So, Zacchaeus, bringing it back to the passage, heard of Jesus, Jesus the healer, the forgiver, the redeemer. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So the teachings of Jesus connects with the life of Zacchaeus, specifically his, his, his crisis point at a particular point in his life, his, his, his guilt of being a tax collector and his failure to find worth in his riches, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we are called to do likewise to connect the teachings of Jesus to the life of our non-believing co-workers, friends, and our neighbors. And I believe this is best done when we're present uh, with our non-believing friends and our colleagues and our neighbors. And when crisis points happen, that is our opportunity to show and demonstrate to them that Jesus, the teachings, the, the sayings of Jesus actually make sense to them. It actually makes a difference. It, it, it has the ability and capacity to put a dent in their life. People have this default position uh, when it comes to Christianity. Oh, it's irrelevant. Ah, oh, it's backward. But when they're going through a crisis point, hope is a strong thing for them. And it's something that is unique, I believe, to the Christian faith. Uh, Mark will talk a little bit about this later on. Uh, but Sam Chan, who, who is brilliant at, at um, talking a little bit about this, he puts it this way. Be the default chaplain of your network and neighborhood. So a chaplain is basically like a spiritual counselor, okay? So so be the spiritual counselor that everyone in your network, at your office, in your neighborhood knows as the Christian person that you can go to for prayer, that you can go to for advice, that you can go to for a bit of compassion. So, So position yourself and practice yourself to be the chaplain of your office, of your store, of your street. Be the chaplain. Get on the inside of those on the outside. Connect with their life. So the second point is connect with your life. The first point was connect with their life. Now we're supposed to connect with your life. So when Jesus, uh, verse five, uh, and Jesus uh, and, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So it's kind of funny here. Jesus essentially self-invites him into Zacchaeus' house. He says, I must stay at your house today. He, he insists on staying with Zacchaeus. To us, this this point doesn't seem all that important. It might seem even a bit odd. Uh, Imagine if someone insisted that they are coming over to your place suddenly. It's a bit weird. But this is where we have to do a bit of, uh, uh, this is where we have to understand the culture and the context uh, a little bit. So the culture of the time uh, and Jesus' time placed an enormous significance on communal identity. Okay? So the people that you hung out with defined your status and reputation. It spoke of what your status in life and status in society was. And on top of that, on a religious level, uh, the standard of holiness that a teacher, a holy teacher was meant to uh, define himself by was also uh, largely uh, dependent on who you associated with, your, your group identity. So if you were a pastor, back in those days, if pastors existed, then you only hung around pastors. Uh, So like Jesus, who was a rabbi, a holy teacher, he was meant to hang out with people who were considered to be holy. So so mingling of social and religious classes was very, very rare, if if not non-existent. So for Jesus to insist on staying at Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus, who was a sinner, And a rich man who profited off his sin is Jesus insisting to be involved with Zacchaeus to associate with him, to open up his life to him. Now, just a side note, a tax collector wasn't someone who worked for the Jewish ATO at the time. A tax collector in this context was basically synonymous to the word trader. He was a traitor to his people because what a tax collector did, he collected taxes from the people, uh, from his own neighbors in order to fund the occupation for the Romans. And the Romans were the ones that conquered the country of Judea, their own country of the, of the Jews. So, so people like Zacchaeus were uh, helping oppress uh, the people uh, who lived uh, amongst them, the Jews. And on top of that, he was actually taking a little bit uh, off the top for himself when he collected the taxes. So he was a very, very uh, he's an evil person uh, in any uh, real sense at the time. But Jesus is willing to be known as the person who associated with the guy like that uh, to be known as the friend of sinners, the friend of the deplorable, the friend of traitors like Zacchaeus. So If Jesus is willing to open up his life to Zacchaeus, then how might opening up our lives to non-believers today look like? Because we're called to do the same as well. It probably doesn't look exactly like what we read here. Of course, in our day and age, if you insist on staying over a person's house that you just came into contact with, that might be called a home invasion or trespassing on private property, right? It's a bit different in our context. Uh, Jesus practices what we might call reverse hospitality here. And I believe uh, Pastor Paul referenced that uh, last week as well. But I think for us, it's no different, minus the reverse part. We open up our lives by practicing biblical hospitality. Have you ever thought it odd uh, when you read the scriptures that hospitality is counted as a spiritual gift? If you could have one spiritual gift right now, what would it be? I'd imagine that not many of us are burning with desire to get the gift of hospitality. In 1 Timothy, uh, hospitality is listed as a requirement of a church leader. It's it's not a preferred trait. In 1 Timothy, we read that he must be hospitable. So, so if, if the Bible places such importance on this spiritual gift, may, maybe we should too. But, but let me talk a little bit about hospitality because I think uh, it means different things in different contexts. Being gifted in hospitality is not to be gifted in entertaining people when they come over. That's kind of like what we think about when we think of the word hospitality. It's not about being able to prepare the best grazing table, although that's great, or providing a big backyard for your friends to come out and hang with. That's great as well, but hospitality is much more than that. So here it is, the definition. Hospitality is about meeting the stranger and welcoming that stranger to become your neighbor. So meeting the stranger, welcoming that stranger, to become your neighbor if we take this definition didn't jesus do this he, he practiced the spiritual gift of hospitality when he came down from heaven to earth to meet the sinner and stranger and welcome that stranger to not only become his neighbor but a son of god jesus's whole earthly mission can be summed up as hospitality um so hospitality does not equal entertainment. Right? I think that's a that's a pretty reductionist, a, a, a reductive way of defining hospitality. Biblical hospitality is opening up your heart, your home, your life, because you genuinely want to, because you genuinely want to get to know people in your network and neighborhood. The, the key word is genuinely. Right. I think we should largely stop thinking of conversations with non-believers as a, as a covert evangelistic operation to get them to church. Um, I've thought, I've thought like that before and i am tempted to think like that even now, but that, that that takes away the genuineness of it, doesn't it? And in fact, in in this day and age, the goal isn't to get them to church because I think people who haven't been churched, uh, who don't have church experience are far less likely to visit a church at all but what they're more likely to do is visit the home of a friend and I think this is a crucial opportunity for Christians to to rise up and 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 uh, take a hold of this culture that we live in because I think in this day and age people more and more are becoming further and further apart from one another but in a weird paradoxical way People are more and more yearning for genuine relationships. There seems to be less and less in our present age of genuine relationships, even more so if you live in a city like, like Sydney. So, so what a great opportunity for us as Christians to build that space and, and invite people into uh, our own space. Just like Jesus opened up his life by going into Zacchaeus. So sh- shouldn't we open up our lives by opening up our homes? And, and tell our non-believing, uh, Christ, non-believing friends and our non-believing world that there is a space for genuine relationships in the Christian context. And again, this is, this is a sentence summary. Um, bring inside those who are outside. Bring inside those who are outside. You could take this application of opening up your home to be more a, uh, metaphorical one and I'm not saying that's wrong you might be thinking okay so opening up my my home so 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 what you're saying Daniel is opening up the home of my schedule uh, opening up the home of my personal space yeah I can do that and that's great you should but can I challenge us humbly uh, but I think Especially as we move towards launch, can I challenge us, if you're able to, uh, to invite a, a friend or, or a coworker or a neighbor into our literal homes? You know, share food with them, share dinner, share lunch with them, have good conversations with them on a regular basis? Many of our non-believing friends would largely be uncomfortable of the idea of regularly attending church. Sure, they might come to the launch service, but by and large, they might feel, they probably will feel uncomfortable coming to church regularly. But but most, if not all of them, wouldn't object to genuine love from a Christian neighbor or friend in the form of asking them, hey, you want to come over to my place and have some dinner? You know, enjoying good food and good company in their home regularly. I think one of the the greatest criticisms lobbed against Christians is that we are too judgmental and we're supposed to be loving, but we're not loving. So what better way is there to overcome that criticism by inviting our coworker, friend, and neighbor, but by showing and demonstrating to him, no, we we care about you. We don't judge you. We, We do love you. We invite them despite maybe the ethnic or even socioeconomic or even cultural or even religious difference into our homes to show them that we do love all people and we want all people to come and know Jesus. What better better way is there to connect people that we contact to Christianity than to a real-life Christian like you and me? Once again, I say it again, bring inside those who are outside. And uh, much of this is, is, isn't original. <laughs> um, it, this is from uh, what I've read from uh, Rosaria Butterfield's challenging book, The Gospel Comes with the Housekeep. Uh Amazing author, amazing Christian sister. Uh, she writes from the perspective of personally experiencing the warm, loving invitation of Christian hospitality an invitation that turns into an experience of the warm, loving invitation of Jesus Christ. So let me read a little bit and share a little bit of her story. When I lived as a lesbian activist, I had been in a lesbian relationship for some years, and I very much thought this is who I am, and this is uh, is how I want to live. When I started writing my post-tenure book, it was on the religious right and the people they supposedly hated, like me. Just a bit of background. Rosaria used to be a feminist, p- feminist uh, professor uh, at Syracuse University in the States. So, yeah. Um, during that time in my research, I got to know a neighbor. And his name was Ken Smith, who also happened to be a conservative Presbyterian minister. And what was striking was that his home looked a lot like my home. You see, among my LGBT circles in New York in the 90s, especially during the AIDS crisis, somebody's home was open every night of the week. There was a lot going on. My community had to gather together and not by invitation because this was a crisis. This was an emergency. During the AIDS epidemic, we called ourselves family and I was proud of it because I thought that this was unique to the gay community. But it wasn't, because Ken Smith's community was like this too. Ken's Christian community gathered at his house at all hours. I learned this because he invited me in. For two whole years, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community that I had mocked, despised and rejected. There is simply no way I would have walked into a church if I hadn't had a genuine friendship with the man behind the pulpit. For two years, I was part of Ken and Floyd's ministry. Floyd's is Ken's wife. I met with them once a week at their home. The door was wide open. People were always in and out of the house. People from church and people not from church heated genuine conversations would happen people would speak honestly tears would flow but it was different because ken would open the bible and sing from the psalms and he would pray for me it was so disarming i couldn't help but go back it was in this context of hospitality that ken brought the church to me because it was impossible for me to get to the church without the bridge of somebody's home. So long story short, uh, Rosaria Butterfield is now a Christian. Uh, she's married uh, to um, another Christian man, and uh, she's a mother of two beautiful children. Um, and, and yeah, I encourage you guys to look into more of her story. But, but how beautiful is that to hear about someone who uh, we probably would write off in our hearts, who think that they could come to Jesus because of the faithful hospitality of someone named Ken Smith, she is now a believer. I hope that there were many stories of that in our church as well in the future. So just to finish off, I would like to mention a short final point and word of caution. When Jesus stayed with Zacchaeus, the crowd complained and, and they accused Jesus of associating with a, ch- uh, with a sinner. In fact, earlier in Luke five and seven, we read that he had already built up a reputation for being a friend of sinners. But Jesus didn't become friends of sinners to become a sinner himself. Obviously he befriended them in order to free them from their sin. So we must always be mindful that in the process of connecting with non-believers through their lives and through our lives, that we remember why we are doing it. Why we're doing it. Well, it's to see them freed from sin as well. It's to see their lives transformed. It's to see their lives filled with the joy of knowing Jesus the way we know him. The statement, Jesus is a friend of sinners, never equals Jesus loved a good party. It never equals Jesus hung out with drunks. Jesus is a friend of sinners equals the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We need to be friends of sinners so that Jesus can seek them and save them. An evening encounter with Jesus is is, is enough for Zacchaeus to have his life totally transformed. Right In Luke 18, the previous chapter, we read that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven but a couple of verses after that, we now witness a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. That is the power of Jesus. And that's our goal too. To, to many of our non-believing, uh, when we think about our non-believing friends, it's hard for us to imagine they're actually coming to Jesus, isn't it? But if Zacchaeus can turn to Jesus through Jesus, why can't they? That's our goal. By connecting them, and seeing their lives completely transformed by Jesus. That is our goal. But in order to do this, we need to keep in mind that Jesus was a friend of sinners, but no friend of sin. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but no friend of sin. Okay, so that saying bad company corrupts good character does need to be somewhat considered when we approach this step. We have to be careful to not love the world, Or the things of the world, because unfortunately we read that if we do, the Bible says that the love of the Father is not in us. And I've seen this personally work out in my own life, when I hung out with my non-Christian friends, when I spent a lot of time with them, that the temptation to to uh, see uh, to speak in a different way, uh, to uh, in in my speech and language changing, because that's all I hear with my non-Christian friends. It's hard to keep. Uh, speaking like a Christian, it's easy to drop an F bomb here and there. It's easy to badmouth other people. It's easy to join in the complaint. It's all too easy. But we need to resist that. We're kidding ourselves if we think that the battle doesn't exist. We're kidding ourselves if we can just go there and connect them, uh, connect them to Jesus without actually understanding. Hey, they actually might have the, uh, the they might actually have the uh, ability to influence us. You know, we are also uh, susceptible to influence by the world. We are either being influenced by it or we're influencing it. So, so we need to be a friend of sinners like Jesus, but no friend of sin also like Jesus. So that's just a, a, a short little side point that I, I have to mention uh, as we look to connect, our, connect to our non-Christian friends. But at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid of the battle, right? Some of us might be inclined to go the other way. We're too often scared that the world is going to corrupt us too much, to change us too much, so we actively run away from it. But but Jesus didn't do that either, did he? He ran towards us when we were of the world, and he ran ran into the world in order to save it. So, So we need to do the same thing as well. We need to run into the world in order to save people in it. And it's encouraging to know that the same author uh, that wrote uh, and warned us, uh, if, 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 if you love the world or the things of the world, uh, you won't have the love of the Father. The person who said that, it was the Apostle John, says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So, so Jesus was a friend of sinners, but no friend of sin. And John promises us that he is in us. He's working through us. So yes, we we ought to be cautious, but we also must be courageous. We need to go into the world and connect with non-believers and show them what Jesus looks like. That's what's at stake. So um, that's it for me. Um, I would want us to uh, discuss a little bit about uh, what we just talked about. So these are the two questions. Uh, Open up their life, open up your life. Which do you find to be particularly challenging for you? And how might you push yourself to be better in that area? And the question number two, discuss some ways we might approach connecting with non-Christians to influence them without being unhealthily influenced by them. Um, Pastor Paul, does Mark come in now? Or is it after the discussion? Um, yeah, Mark comes in now. Cool. Um, I am going to, uh, leave the meeting cause I need to jet to my growth group's house. So thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. All right, Mark, when you're ready,
1: you want to take it away? Hello, church and friends. Um, so yeah, I'll be sharing about, yep, yeah, connect. Um, a lot of um, things that I'll be sharing will coincide with what Pastor, uh, Pastor Daniel shared today. Um, so last week I talked about going to their things before they come to our things, which was the idea that by simply spending time with non-Christians, we can get the evangelism ball rolling. Uh, we can take this one step further. And the next strategy I want to share is this. Get our friends to become their friends get our Christian friends mingling with our non-Christian friends. And I'll explain why evangelizing in this way can be more effective than doing it alone. This is because of something called plausibility structures. Plausibility structures are accepted beliefs, convictions, and understandings that makes truth claims plausible or red-light them as implausible. So plausibility structures lead us to judge whether something is believable or unbelievable. And according to Sam Chan, our community, so our trusted friends and family, has a powerful role in forming our beliefs. People will find a story more believable if more people in their community also believe the story. So what does this mean? Why are we talking about the importance of community and how it affects our plausibility structures? Maybe you guys can relate with me, but I know I have two separate universes of friends, Christian and non-Christian. And I keep it separate because it's just more convenient that way. And you guys might do this too. You guys might separate your friendship circles and there might be a number of different reasons why we do this. When we talk about the importance of community and plausibility structures, Sam Chan is suggesting that we need to merge our universes. We need to merge our Christian and non Christian circle of friends. Now this scenario might sound familiar. You get fired out about evangelism, go out guns blazing. I'm going to go tell my friends about Jesus. We decide it's time to hang out with non-Christians and tell them about Jesus. So we start hanging out with them, spending time with them, and we try doing it solo. But there are two potential problems with the scenario. Uh, Number one, it's easier to burn out because you're the only person trying to pour into these people's lives and it gets hard. And the second potential problem is that We're the only person in the group who believes this Jesus story. The Jesus story is true, but it comes across as less believable if we're the only Christians they know. What if we merged our universe, the friends, what if we were able to get our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends? What if the next time our non-Christian friends go to the movies, we ask if we can bring along some of our Christian friends. What if the next time our Christian friends have a barbecue lunch? And we ask if we can bring our non-Christian friends. And this happened organically at our last fellowship slash evangelism golf event. Um, Deacon Thomas's brother-in-law, Stephen, joined us. And he said he enjoyed the event and enjoyed hanging out with us. And I think he said Christians are cool or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I might be making that up. Um, but just like this, gradually, bit by bit, our universes will have both Christian and non-Christians, hopefully with a good mix. And the Jesus story becomes more believable to our non-Christian friends, because in a room of trusted friends, half the people believe in it. Now, talking about like this, it makes it sound easier than it actually is. Evangelism has to be a lifestyle change. Making friends and merging friends takes time, and merging our social worlds may not be easy. So this strategy requires a lifestyle change. Our usual approach to evangelism might be to add on some activity to our lives. But Sam Chan argues that this cannot be the case. We need to change our lives so that we live in an evangelistic lifestyle and it can't be something we tack onto our lives. And I'll talk a bit about hospitality as well. Um, Sam Chan says hospitality is a powerful means of evangelism. And if we carefully read the new Testament letters, we find that hospitality is quite prominent in the early church. While the gifts of teaching and preaching proclaim the words of the gospel, hospitality demonstrates that the gospel is real, authentic, believable, attractive, and livable. Another way to say this is that hospitality breaks down plausibility structures. The gospel might be true, but to most non-Christians, it just sounds unbelievable. And the gospel will remain this way, unbelievable, as long as our non-Christian friends don't have many Christian friends. By sharing our homes, merging our two universes, our non-Christian friends will get to eat with and know more Christians, and maybe even start to adopt their Christian friends' plausibility structures. And hospitality also provides a space in which gospel conversations can happen in a friendly and safe environment. In the private spaces of our homes, around food, our friends are more likely to talk about matters related to religion, especially if we show them it's safe to do so. And this brings me to the next strategy. Um, last week talked, we talked about coffee, dinner, gospel, and hopefully as we facilitate a more private environment with our non-Christian friends, we can start talking about topics of the sacred realm. So how do we start bringing up Jesus in the conversation? The fourth strategy Sam Chan introduces is to listen to their story first. Instead of worrying about what we will say, let them begin the conversation about their values, their worldviews, and religion. This way we have a better sense of where they're coming from. And if we have listened to them with respect, understanding and empathy, hopefully they'll do the same for us when it's our turn to talk. So begin by letting them go first. We ask them about their faith, spirituality, prayer or religion. The aim here is to listen, understand and empathize. Try not to interrupt. Try not to think about how you can dissect their position. Don't assume you know what their faith or religion does or believes. But instead, ask lots of questions so you hear properly what they're saying. Listen so you can understand their faith and their cultural context and try to feel and see the world from their point of view. And if we've listened to them with respect, sooner or later, hopefully they'll reciprocate. And from this position, we can launch into sharing our faith, our testimony, and the gospel. That's it from me. Thank you.